Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your good news. Religion, self-improvement, all kinds of programs invite us and tell us to try harder, to be better, to pull ourselves up. You announce instead that you have come down. You have humbled yourself to the point of death among us, Jesus, to make us as you are, to take us, Lord, where you reign in glory. So thank you. Lord, you know my heart. You know how much I have, I've asked and I need this sermon to change my life first and also for its truth to change the lives of those who need to hear it. Help me. Can't do it without you. Help us hear from you, Jesus, and become the kind of people that you died to make us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. It has been a chaotic morning. I was meeting some new friends, and an, a friend from years ago walked by, and sorry, Arnie, if I was really quick there. My, my brain's a little scattered. How's yours doing? What a comforting thing to hear right before a sermon, right, that the guy, the guy who's preaching feels a little scattered. It's a different kind of Sunday. We have a lot of people up on the mountain on our men's retreat, and so we're going to continue to pray that they'll be safely home later this afternoon. Uh, for myself, I, I went to uh, just a wonderful little wedding in Phoenix with a dearly loved family in our church, and folks, don't, don't ever go to Phoenix, okay? Only, <laughs> only to love, show love to somebody else should you ever, uh, should you ever go to Phoenix. Just a quick little reminder. Huntington Beach is absolutely gorgeous. You should totally do whatever you can to stay right here. Now then, let's stop. Let, let's stop with that and talk about something that matters. For the next four weeks, I'm going to depart from our normal style of teaching. What we normally do at Crosspoint is pick a book of the Bible and move right through it. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke for a very long time, and it's taking longer than it otherwise would, because through the year we'll incorporate two or three different books or sections of the Bible and move through them uh, as, as weeks go by. This teaching this week and for the next three is different. It's doctrinal teaching. Don't let that word scare you. All that doctrine means is teaching itself. The point of doctrinal teaching is to try to gather from various parts of the Bible and put it in one easily digestible package, something that God has said about some aspect of life or reality. For instance, there is a doctrine of God. There is a doctrine of humanity. Who is God? What is He like? What are human beings like? What is good about us? What is wrong with us? There's a doctrine about everything that God made. The Bible teaches about everything that God made, or at least everything He wants us to know. If it's necessary to life and godliness, the Bible says, it's in Scripture. Doctrinal teaching, rather than move through a specific book, tries to gather from various parts of the Bible and kind of crystallize it, tell you a few basic things about a specific topic. That's why we're in this four-week series. There's a temptation here. The temptation is this. These topics for the next four weeks, beginning today, are so basic that if you've been following Jesus for a while, you might be tempted to think that you're past it, that you know it, that you're already doing a good job with it. 
Let me just remind you, if you've ever met anybody who's really good at what they do, that man or that woman is a master of the fundamentals of whatever they're good at. They never neglect the fundamentals. They keep going back to basics, and they may have practiced a movement, an effort, a discipline, whatever they're into, sport, work, whatever it is, they continue drilling, repeating, and wiring into themselves, into their mind and into their body, the very basic fundamental things that they're of their task, that's why they're great. They can be innovative and creative and amaze everybody because the fundamentals are so good. You never outgrow the basics. So, for the next four weeks, we're going to talk about the basics, and the most fundamental thing in Scripture is love. I'm going to show you in the Bible that Jesus Himself, put on the spot, was asked a biblical test question, and what He pointed back as the fundamental thing in everything that God had said boiled down to love. The tricky thing is, when I say love in the United States, that important word has stretched so far that love might be everything from your girlfriend to pizza. People speak about loving all kinds of different things. In our culture, I'm going to try to expose three, three myths, three lies that have reshaped the biblical idea of love and have insistently told you through all kinds of different means, entertainment, the internet, viral videos, memes, you name it, there are things that are consistently being reinforced in culture that are subtle distortions or flat-out contradictions of what God has said about love. And for those of you who are men in the congregation this morning, again, most of the men are actually at the retreat this morning, or many of them are at least. When a man in our culture hears the word love, there's a certain teaching and vibe that's grown up around love that makes at least some men kind of pull back. And they hear the word love, and they think that's a rather effeminate trait. They'd rather speak in terms of courage or strength or boldness or daring. I'm going to suggest to you and show to you in a crucial moment of Jesus' life that whoever you are, man or woman, young or old, the most needful thing in your life is to be loving the way God is loving to grow in love the way Jesus Himself is love, and I'm going to show you courage to the utmost. I especially encourage you men, especially young men, not to shy away from the word love and think that it doesn't have much to do with you or teach you. Let's go, please, to the Gospel of Matthew first. Here's the setting. In Matthew, the first gospel that tells us about the, the life of Jesus. In Matthew 22, Jesus is under continual pressure. And different religious groups, different factions in Israel are coming to Jesus and deliberately trying to get Him in trouble. He's been tested by one group called the Sadducees, now the Pharisees, who are, in this time, they are the experts in God's Word. In other words, they knew what you and I call the Old Testament literally by heart. They're going to try to put Jesus on the spot, and here's what it sounded like. But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, 
they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, and this is not a lawyer in our modern understanding, a lawyer in the day of Jesus in this context is an expert in the Bible, an expert in the Hebrew Scriptures. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And there's the motivation. Matthew's kind of taking you behind the scenes and letting you see the man's heart. He's not asking Jesus a question to learn from him. His mind is made up. He thinks he knows the answer. He's putting himself in the teaching position. He believes that he knows what is true. He's now going to test Jesus to see if Jesus knows. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And that doesn't sound like much to you or me, but in Jesus' day, these competing religious factions, all claiming to be experts and having understood perfectly what God had said in His Word, were, had a lot of different opinions. These experts, so-called, spent a lot of time sifting through the Bible and sorting all the different things that God had said. They would say, this is a light commandment or a heavy commandment. This is a great commandment or a small commandment. Now Jesus says, of all the things that God told us, what's the greatest? What matters most? Read just this screen with me. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And Jesus reaches into Deuteronomy, the fifth book in your Bible, and says, the great commandment is this, love the Lord your God with everything you have. Another gospel says, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus was being asked this on a regular basis. What matters most is that you love the God who made you with everything you have, and because Jesus always gives you what you need, and often more than you expect, he gave him a bonus. He said, in a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what is the great commandment? Love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your God with everything. And the second is similar to it. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Let's just be practical. Let's take Jesus seriously. One of the ways you honor a person is taking seriously what they tell you. Just ask yourself, have you, has your life been characterized with loving God with everything God gave you? Would you say that your, your thoughts, your emotions, your choices, your strength, your abilities have been dedicated to loving God before you love anyone or anything else, including yourself? It's pretty humbling, isn't it? And if it's too hard to conceive of loving God who you cannot see in that way, Jesus says, there's another commandment. You ask me for one, I'm going to give you two. The second is like it, you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. Ooh. That's hard. I told you last week this great quote from this preacher from years ago, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. <laughs> Most people have an enormous self-regard. We're continually thinking about life through how it affects us. We'll hear of some tragedy, some great problem in the community, in the nation, and our 
first thought, generally speaking, until we're trained to love and we actually learn to love, our first thought is, how does this affect me? First commandment, love God with everything. Second commandment, love your neighbor the way you love yourself. Then he gives him a summary statement. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All the Scripture you've studied, all the Scripture you've memorized, literally in Greek, it is all suspended by, it is all held up by these two commandments. Love vertically with all that God gave you and love horizontally. Love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. That's love. But it's hard. In fact, one of the challenges in evaluating love is that I'm going to show you the Bible never gives you a concise definition of what it means to love. It describes the attributes and the behavior of love. To understand why you must love others, there's a helpful little definition from the great C.S. Lewis. Here's how he defined love. This doesn't improve upon Scripture, it just sheds light on biblical teaching, which is what I'm trying to share with you doctrinally this morning. Lewis said, love is not affectionate feeling, but a steady wish for the loved one's ultimate good as far as it can be obtained. I love how practical that is. That's just a few words, but it encompasses a lot. Love is not an affectionate feeling. Often you will feel affection in loving someone, but that is not what love is. We'll come to that in a few minutes. But love primarily is not feeling. What love is, is a steady wish, a quiet determination, a long-lasting desire for the person you love, for them to have the ultimate good, to do what is in their best interest as far as it can be obtained. In other words, as much as it depends upon you. So if I take C.S. Lewis's helpful little definition and test it against the Word of God, because Lewis isn't an apostle, he's not writing for God, he's just one disciple, one Christian trying to summarize what he finds in the Bible, I can test Lewis's definition against what Jesus said from the authority of God's Word. Someone who loves God then, does not make their choices and their behavior toward God depend on how they feel about it on any given day. What someone who really loves God is determined to do is for God's good, God's glory, God's reputation, God's name to be lifted up, to be defended, to be protected, for people to be drawn to Him, to not sell God out, to not sell Him short or say that He is less than He actually is. I'm going to be really, really practical. In our increasingly secular culture, the great temptation for Christians is to take the historic Word of God that is abundantly clear on the things that are vitally important to life and godliness, and because of cultural pushback, because of the fear of other people to say less than God has said about Himself or to, frankly, contradict what God has told us about Himself. The intention in that case will be to be liked and maybe even loved by the people who don't want to hear about God as the Bible explains Him, but that's not loving when I choose to do that. I'm not showing love toward God or those people because the greatest thing I could ever do for anybody is to let them understand who God actually is. Is this making sense? 
We're not allowed, we're not appointed or empowered to edit who God is. God is who He is. He is eternal and unchanging. In His great love, He has spoken to us first through His Word and later through His Son. The reality of who God is and what God has said is unchanging because God Himself doesn't change. And when I know that, and I'm actually in a personal, loving, loyal relationship with the God of the universe, and then in comes all the cultural pressure. You don't mean to tell me that. You can't possibly believe that when out of fear of that other person or a desire to keep cordial relationships with them, I apologize for God, go quiet about what God has said, I am failing to love both God and the person I'm talking to. When you truly love God or another person, it is their good that matters. What is ultimately true and beneficial to them that is uh, that stands at the very heart of what you're wanting to do. One of the many reasons that God does not sin and cannot sin is because the Bible itself tells us that God is love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that if we do not love, we don't know God because God is love, and genuine love never does anything that is wrong. God can't sin for many reasons that are inherent in His character, but the fact that God is love is just one of them. So then, after that introduction, let me now make that as practical as I can by telling you three lies that are circulating through the culture and replacing them with biblical truth. Here's the first myth. The first myth is this, love is always pleasant for everyone involved. I'm glad you're laughing because that tells me you know immediately something about love. Here's the simplest way to understand that. Not all of you here, but many of you here are parents or have been parents. Let me just ask you, has that always been pleasant? No. It's always worth it, but it is often very, very unpleasant. If you're the right kind of parent, very often your kids won't like you. They may even tell you they don't love you. I've heard several children, and I cringed and had to leave because I wasn't quite sure what I might say or do to the child or to the parent in response. I've heard children say to their parents, I hate you. Now, what is often happening there, that child is pushing back hard against a parent, and the reason the child that four-year-old is expressing hate is because the parent has actually done something that represents love and the kid simply doesn't like it. Love is not always pleasant for everyone involved. Look at Proverbs. Proverbs 27 verse 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now, Proverbs are these sharp, witty sayings from the Bible. Sometimes they're a little cryptic. Sometimes they're deliberately obscure to make you sit there and think. That's how Proverbs work. Their meaning is not always immediately on the surface. Sometimes they just make observations about life, and you're to sit there and think, what does that mean, and how have I seen that work? Faithful are the wounds of a friend profuse are the kisses of an enemy. What in the world does that mean? Well, often a different translation will help you get to the meaning, and I think that's what happens here. Read Proverbs 27, verse 6, the second verse from the NIV with me. It says this, wounds from a friend can be trusted, 
but an enemy multiplies kisses. What does that mean? It means that someone who really actually loves you in friendship is willing to hurt you, but never harm you. They would rather tell you the truth in love because they are determined on your ultimate good rather than go quiet or, like the enemy that multiplies kisses, flatter you and tell you that you're always right and you never do anything wrong and you're simply amazing and you deserve your own hashtag. (laughs) People who really love you will never flatter you. They'll encourage you. They'll listen to you. They'll comfort you. They'll treat you with kindness. They'll give you patience, but they will never flatter you. That's what enemies do. Always be mindful when someone is over-the-top flattering. You're just amazing. Just ask yourself, are they really this nice, or is there something going on at work here? Because what Proverbs 27 verse 6 tells me is that the wounds, the hurtful words from a friend, if they really are your friend, they really do love you, you can trust them in that hurt, but it's an enemy that is always going to be fawning over you, flattering you, telling you that you're simply awesome. Here's one way I saw it play out in my struggles as a, as a parent. I have two boys. They're practically grown now. And uh, the older boy who just graduated from college is 22 and a very different person now. But when he was three, he was brutal. Just an exhausting child. He, he, he didn't so much sleep as reload. You know, he was just that, that, that kind of kid. And at the time, we were missionaries, we were starting our missionary career, and we were living with my in-laws in West Texas, and I'm so glad that Cecil and Lana live here uh, now. They're just an amazing blessing to our family, always have been. But Cecil and Lana have always kept an immaculate home. They have the kind of home where a realtor friend would sometimes call them and say, I've got a client, I'd like to come by your house and show it as a model home can I be there in 15 minutes? And they would always say, of course, come on in, because the house just always looks like a model house. Would you like that scenario? I, I certainly wouldn't, right? I wouldn't like that at all. So we're living in this beautiful, comfortable home, which they keep just right, with three-year-old Genghis Khan here, Genghis Garner. <laughs> and I'm sitting in this tasteful living room, and here comes my child right down the big hallway, just just a, a swath of destruction and screaming, just all the way down the hall, and his poor, beloved, saintly mother in hot pursuit trying to catch him, and then I can hear that she caught him, and now two voices are yelling, right, and it's being settled uh, off stage somewhere. And I looked at my father-in-law, and I was embarrassed about it, and I said, oh, man, parenting tough, isn't it? And that's my quiet way of saying, hey, give me a break. You know, it's hard. You can tell. You're a parent. You get it. Well, my father-in-law raised three girls. He's a pastor. He's a retired pastor. He does a lot of pastoral work here at our church, as some of you know. And just to give you a measure of the character of the man, his, all three of his girls married pastors. Say what you will about their individual choices, particularly Charisse's. But I think that says a lot about the kind of man and pastor he was, that their daughter, his daughters, all three of them were willing to marry a man who did the same kind of work. And he looked at me and gave me the best parenting advice I've ever received. It's been ringing in my ears ever since, even now with my kids nearly grown. 
He looked at me in bewilderment and said, Bruce, I never thought of it as tough. And I looked at him like, I thought you didn't drink. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean it's not tough? Here's what he said. And it's love. It's love in a sentence. He said, I just worked really hard to make sure that my girls always understood how I wanted them to act and how I wanted them to be. And then, when I knew they were disobeying me, I moved as quickly as I could to correct them, listen for it, so that we could enjoy the rest of our day. That's different from the way most people parent. They threaten, they yell, they give warnings, they count to three. If you're counting to three, please stop. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to meddle too much, but what, when you do that, all you're doing is teaching your child to disobey you until the last possible moment. Don't give them that lesson. It's a disastrous lesson with bosses and police officers later in life, okay? I'm, I'm telling you, I've got some experience with it. Don't, don't do that. He said, I work hard to make sure that they understand the standard, what we're expecting, the behavior that we're looking for. And when they disobey, not when they're forgetful, not when they're childish, when they're actually defiant, here's the money part, I move quickly as fast as I can to correct them so that we can enjoy the rest of our day. That's love. Because to be inconvenienced to leave the store, to stop your schedule, to put your work down, to hang up the phone, and at that moment correct your child, and all the time that it may take to correct your child, and then to make sure that they're okay and the relationship is restored and we're back to enjoying our day. Most parents, many, I don't know about most, many just threaten. They just yell. They just say, right, not now. They just slam the door. They say, Don't you tell, can't you tell I'm busy? They do all kinds of things except be inconvenienced and sacrifice time and intention and opportunity in any other area because what matters right now is correcting this child, getting them back on the path of obeying God and obeying and loving other people who are above them and then getting on to enjoy the rest of your day. This is Proverbs 27, verse 6, in the parent mode. The wounds from a loving parent, from a loving friend, from a loving coworker in your little circle of community, the people who really love you are willing to get on you and correct you. It is only your enemies who are going to flatter you. Here's how Hebrews 12 verse 6 explains it. This kind of discipline, this kind of correction actually models God. It's an example of His correction. It says, Hebrews 12, verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves and He chastises every son whom He receives. That means if you're not receiving correction from God, you don't belong to Him. God disciplines everyone who is actually in His family. Just to make this really practical, I've only corrected, trained, spanked, whatever was age appropriate, my own children, never the neighbors. I've sometimes wanted to deal with the neighbor's kids because reasoning that it would be better for all of us if I did since nobody else was doing it, but I can't. Those aren't my kids. 
That's exactly the word picture in Hebrews 12. If you're really in the family of God, He is going to discipline you. It will sometimes be painful. So anytime you're going through a painful experience, you should ask yourself, is this just one of those times that life in a fallen world is difficult? Or have I stepped out of God's road? Am I, have I offended Him? Have I sinned against Him? Most of all, how am I going to turn to Him to love Him and to restore the fellowship of our relationship because I'm receiving this as the way God intends it. I'm receiving this as discipline from the Lord. So the myth is that love is always pleasant for everyone involved. The truth is this, the good of the other person is what matters to us when we love them. And I will be inconvenienced, I will risk the relationship, I will risk being misunderstood, I will risk all kinds of damage to myself and even to our relationship, but I will never tell you less than the truth in love because what matters to me is not what you think of me, not whether you like me at this moment, but what is actually good for you. And you'll say, well, who made you the boss? How are you going to know? The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything you have. If you have heard from Him, you can confidently share with others, beginning in your own family, this is what God has told us, this is what we're going to insist on. Second myth, you have to feel it. I don't know if you've noticed, I'm just not feeling it is almost a phrase that defines most of American life now. It's amazing how often people make major life decisions just because they say, eh, just not feeling it. I've had people tell me they're changing careers, they're divorcing their spouses, all kinds of really big shift, major turn in life just because I'm not feeling it. The biblical truth is different. Let me take you to a pivotal moment in the life of Jesus, John 13. This is the Last Supper. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Just want you to take that in. This is what is unique about John's gospel. John, more than any other gospel writer, is used by God as the disciple who is physically and relationally closest to Jesus in the world. At this time, John's showing you behind the scenes what Jesus is thinking. The occasion is the Passover, but Jesus is now going to transform the Passover into the Last Supper. And he knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. In other words, that's a very elegant way of Jesus, of being told that Jesus know that now it's the time to die on a Roman cross. And it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them all the way through. He's going to love them by dying for them on the cross, but here's what he does first. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel 
that was wrapped around him. We're familiar with that story. I wonder if you can envision with me for a moment what is actually happening on that night. Jesus knows that in just a few short hours, he's going to be arrested. This time in the upper room and some short teaching he's going to do for them on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane is going to be the last peaceful, enjoyable hours that he will have with his disciples. He knows that Satan himself personally, not just ordinary spiritual warfare, but Satan personally himself is involved, and later in, the, in John chapter 13, you're going to be told that Satan specifically enters Judas. Jesus knows that all of that is at hand. What might his emotions have been? You're given some insight into his actual, real, absolute humanity. Later in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to his father and says, if there's any other way, let this pass from me. He sweats, we're told, as it were, great drops of blood. His disciples sleep, perhaps for grief, while he struggles alone with God, it was so severe that one gospel says that when that ordeal in the Garden of Gethsemane was over, angels came to strengthen him. Were his emotions positive? Was he exuberant, thrilled, happy, overjoyed, filled with all kinds of positive emotion at this time? No. He's greatly troubled. It begins now, and the last great lesson he's going to teach them all, even Judas, whose feet Jesus himself will wash, is that because he loves them, he will continue to serve them and give them even now, just hours before his arrest and his eventual death, he's going to teach them how they are loved so that they will love each other in the same way. Emotions did not rule in the case of Jesus. He overcame his natural, understandable human reactions and feelings and put the emphasis where the Bible does on behavior, on prioritizing the good of the other person. Here's how 1 Corinthians 13 explains it. Let's do a little bit of, of reading together, please. Read this with me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Let me just briefly explain to you some of these very simple attributes that might be a little hidden from, from the top of your thinking. Love is patient and kind. That means that love does not allow itself to be provoked. When the pressure is on, it remains patient and it continues to act with kindness. Love does not envy or boast. I think we all understand that well enough. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful, and that literally means that it doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It's not keeping score. It's not saying that's the twelfth time you've done that, and I've only done that to you twice. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. 
This means that love, of course, never celebrates, is never happy when anyone does anything wrong, but more specifically, I think it means when we discover that people who are opposed to us are actually wrong and are actually kind of creepy, we don't rejoice in it because what they're doing is simply wrong and we take no pleasure in it. If I could be really practical, have you noticed the country is politically divided at the moment? Has that thought been anywhere in your thinking recently? A lot of Christians are ruining their experience with God and their usefulness and love for others by spending a lot of time online finding out as much as they can about the opposition so that when they discover that they have their faults and they have sinned, they say, see, these are the kind of people we're dealing with. In other words, they're rejoicing in wrongdoing. They're saying, I told you they were creeps. Let me send this out. Let me put this on Facebook. Everybody needs to know how awful these people are. What does love do? If they really are wrong, love is grieved that anyone would act that way. They're hurt for what that does to the character and the reputation of God in the case of other Christians. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In other words, love is the kind of person who continually, for the sake of loving the other person, bears with mistreatment, bears with rudeness, continues to believe that that person will change, continues to think the best of that other person when they've given ample reason to kill all of those beliefs. It continues to hope that God will change them, and when they don't change, it continues to endure because love never ends. Now, let's do a two-minute biblical exercise. Ready? Let's go back to the first of this passage. And where it says love or where love is described, I want you to read this again silently and put your own name there. Next slide. How'd you do? It's humbling, isn't it? And this brings me to the third myth. And I hear Christians say this on a regular basis. The truth is this. Love does not depend on feelings. Love acknowledges that when you love, emotions come along for the ride, but you should never, ever let them drive. Literally, thank God that Jesus did not allow His utterly human, natural emotions rule His choices on the night He was betrayed. Third myth, and we're done. Christians say this, you either got it or you don't. I've had many Christian men tell me, I'm just not a very loving person. And what they mean by that is, I, I'm just not very... Tender, you know, I don't like hugs. That may or may not be okay. I don't know. But they want to think of themselves as bold or intrepid, loyal, brave, courageous. May I suggest to you that if you're a Christian, the very essence of being 
in Christ and growing into the likeness of Christ is you are growing in love. You're changing. Here's what Galatians says about it. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's called fruit, if you've noticed. And it's singular. God's Word is very precise. This verse is often misquoted and people will refer to the fruits of the Spirit. And that's not what it says. The reason is this. The word picture is, now that you have believed in Jesus and the Holy Spirit has given you new life, this is the kind of life that the Spirit is at work to produce in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What does God want to produce in you? All of it. Some of these things may come more naturally and, more, and may come more quickly to you, but the fruit of the Spirit, the harvest that God is trying to produce in your life is a growth in all of these areas. In other words, Christians, cross-pointers, you don't get the luxury of saying, eh, joy, just not my thing. No, this is the life that God is at work to produce in you through walking in His Spirit, taking Jesus as your example, having Jesus as your Savior. In fact, he says at the end, the verse that never gets quoted, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, your old life spiritually died with Christ at the cross. He was taking all the sins and the works of the flesh upon Himself and paying the judgment for you so that you could have this kind of life instead. It's called fruit also because it takes time to develop. Nobody grows into patience or love or gentleness overnight, but people change. Just a word about gentleness, because that is particularly so, you, so often misunderstood by people, and particularly men. In the modern context where everybody should have been or could have been a Navy SEAL, to be a gentle man just doesn't sound very good. Here's the biblical idea. Strength under control. Great power, great strength, but it's never out of control. When power and strength are out of control, what it actually shows is selfishness. It shows weakness. It shows not love. It shows hatred. So you can find in Greek literature around the time of Christ a Roman soldier praising his war horse and saying he's a very gentle creature. What does he mean? Not that the horse is timid. No, the horse is strong and ready to charge into an army to do mortal combat, but the horse is completely under his mount's control. The soldier controls him. He doesn't scare easy. He doesn't run off. He doesn't think of himself. He understands the writer's directions and does that. That's what gentle means. If I may, gentlemen, your wife's fondest hope and your children's best blessing will be a man who is under the control of God, who is loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and always faithful and increasingly gentle and growing in self-control because you belong to Jesus. The truth of this is you can and you must grow in love, and if you belong to Jesus, you will. 
at the risk of embarrassing some of his family, let me just give you a practical example. He won't like it, but most of you know him, and it's a helpful, practical picture. Pastor Jim Gain and I have been very good friends and co-workers for a long, long time. I took a seven-year absence. We were missionaries. When we were young staff bucks, we shared an office. And if you know me and you know Jim, it's kind of, I don't know, the odd couple up there in that, that, that old office. We both love the Lord. We're just, God just made us different. If you didn't know him 20 years ago, you don't know the Jim I knew. He's always been strong. He's always been faithful. He's always been determined. He's always been willing to always to speak the truth without fear. But now there's a tenderness. There's a brokenheartedness. There's a compassion and a mercy that was present, but not nearly as abundantly as it is these days. He's a fundamentally different person. Just as saved, just as much a Christian 20 years ago as he is today, but much more like Christ today than he was 20 years ago. Folks, that's how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to grow in the dimensions of Christ-likeness. All of these things. And he is by far a more loving man. I've seen it. I've witnessed it. I've been blessed by it. I've been humbled by it in these last years that we've worked together. And there's only one way to explain all that, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus explained this, and we'll let Jesus have the last word. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love for one another. So this week, you're going out into a world that for the most part does not esteem Christ. If you were to tell many people what you did with your Sunday morning, that you went into a building and sang songs to a God you cannot see, and some guy got up with a book written in the Bronze Age and told you that it was all true, and that you would not only be wise, but you would be safe and blessed if you built your life on the authority of the words that he was reading to you, and you go out to now love that world who thinks there's no particular good reason for you to be here, that this is at best make-believe self-help, the best thing you can do for your circle of friends, for your community, for your family, for the watching world that is increasingly secular and may even in your experience be hostile to your faith and hostile to your Savior, is to love the Lord your God with everything you have and love the people beside you, even, Jesus says, if they are your enemies, to love them and to pray for them, that's the best you can do for them. That's how all people will know if we're actually Jesus' disciples. Some of you are in my season of life, you're trying to parent adults. And I rarely talk to people who are in their late teenage years or even their early 20s without them in their candid moments telling me that they suffer from anxiety. They battle depressive thoughts, sometimes suicidal thoughts. You know what will turn back that darkness? Love. 
telling them that they are dearly loved by God who gave His Son to cover their sins. And they're not only loved by God, they're loved by you. And you will be patient and kind. And you will be gentle. And you will be faithful. And you will be self-controlled. And you will be peaceful and good to them even in their darkest moments. It really is love. And if you settle for a moment for the caricature, the absolute cartoon of the world's version of love that runs primarily on emotions and is willing to change its speech or go quiet altogether because if I say that, you won't like me anymore. We'll have nothing to offer the world. Instead, we have the greatest love that could ever be known, the love of Jesus Christ. This is how they'll know that we are His disciples. Let's pray together. Speaking to Christians first, Are you a loving person? Husbands, would your wife say so? Moms, would your, would your husbands, would your children? Not the people you work with. Students, at your school, would you be known as a loving person? Kind, patient, gentle, self-controlled. Continually looking out for the good of others even if it didn't do anything for you. If, like me, you felt the limits, you've been humbled by that passage, take a moment and tell the Lord about it. Ask Him to change you. And if you don't know this Savior... This whole passage, all of these Bible verses boil down to this. You were loved when you were far from God. If you don't know Jesus this morning, He loved you. He actually did die for you. He offers His life to save yours. Please call out to Him and ask Him for His mercy. You can't actually apply anything I've taught you if Jesus doesn't save you and begin changing you from the inside out. If you don't have Jesus, if you don't take Him as your Savior and your boss, this is all so much self-help, and you won't be able to help yourself. You won't be able to do any of this in any meaningful way until you come to Jesus, who served, sacrificed, and died to give you His life instead of the, your own, the one you've ruined, the one you've used to sin the one where you feel your shame and your guilt. So call out to Him and ask Him to save you. And if you do, and if we can pray for you in any way, please use the card that's in your bulletin. Lord Jesus, receive this final song and this offering, Lord. It's all motivated by love. The only reason a Christian gives, as you've taught us to do, is because he loves you. He loves the gospel. He loves your church. We're willing, Lord, when we give to set aside something that, that we've earned, some blessing we've been given. Give it away so that others may know, others may grow. Lord, if there's a single person here who needs you, I pray that right now they would call out to you as Savior. And for me, Lord, and for this congregation, Lord, that I'm so happy to be a part of, Please let us grow in love. In Christ's name, amen.